If you have a Bible with you, you can open up to uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, and uh, we're going to uh, continue our study through uh, the New Testament letter of 1 Corinthians. And uh, before we turn to God's Word, let me just make uh, one announcement. Uh, this morning, uh, just before this service, uh, we had our first uh, workshop hour of the year. We're starting up our uh, fall workshop classes. These are classes that uh, meet in between the services. And uh, this is some, you know, if you never grew up in a church with uh, going to Sunday school, and that may be a new idea to you, where you go to church and you have a class. And, uh, but, you know, this it's something to uh, think about incorporating into your uh, weekly schedule because uh, this, uh, you know, you already have this time set aside on Sunday mornings to meet with the Lord. But, you know, during our worship services, we uh, the teaching is very one-directional. You know, uh, you don't get chances to ask questions during the sermons or to interact, and uh, it's during these workshop hours that we get to have more interactive teaching. We also get to focus on certain topics that we may not get to on a Sunday morning since we just go right through books of the Bible and we talk about whatever the Bible is going to be saying, and so it's a really valuable time for us to come together as a church and uh, learn from one another, and uh, so uh, these workshops are eight eight weeks long. We had the first one uh, this morning, so if you, if you, you can pick up next week if you want to come be a part of it. If you're a, se- a second service person, you can come early. We also have classes for all ages, uh, for kids, and uh, so we'd love to get you, you plugged in. And uh, you can register online on uh, Church Community Builder, or you can talk to uh, Pastor Daniel um, about uh, getting plugged in as well. So I left my sermon in the office, and Daniel, <laughs> Daniel got it for me. Thank you, Daniel. Okay. Uh, so we're turning now to God's word, and First uh, uh, Corinthians chapter nine, nine, starting in uh, verse twenty-four, going to verse uh, twenty-seven, and I hear the word of the Lord. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control. In all things, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we are hungry to hear from your word that you would speak into our lives from your truth and from the gospel. And Lord, you know our hearts better than anyone. And so we pray that you would speak to us by your spirit. You would apply these words into each one of our individual lives, that our uh, lives would grow in trust, in your love, and also in love for others. So send your Holy Spirit to be our teacher now. Give us ears to hear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we're in a really important uh, passage of Scripture this morning, 1 Corinthians 9, which if you've been with us uh, over the last few weeks that we were in in 1 Corinthians, uh, this is a a chapter where Paul is talking to a very divided church about how important it is that as Christians we give up our rights for the good of the people in our church and the people that we share our life with. You know, it's like in any family, you have to give up your rights in order to live together and love one another and get along with with each other. And so in this chapter, Paul is saying, I'm going to show you my life as an example of what it means to give up your personal rights for the sake of others. 
And this is the end of that section, 1 Corinthians 9. And he says in this passage, is the only way that you can have a life where you give up your rights for the good of others is if you have a life that's defined by self-control. Self-control is key. And, you know, I think for many of us, we have people in our lives who we admire, we look up to. You know, maybe people are older than us who've lived a life that we say, you know, I, I would love for my life to be like that. And I know for me, many of those people that, that play that role have very, you know, disciplined, orderly lives that they really know what their life is about, what's important to them, and they really kind of execute it in their, you know, day-to-day weeks, and they actually live it out in their kind of their values and actually how they spend their time and what they do. Those two things cohere with one another. And I, uh, when I was in seminary in St. Louis, uh, I took a class. It was a leadership class from a pastor at a church down in Birmingham, Alabama. And this is a guy who probably couldn't be more different than me. You know, he's a very southern gentleman kind of guy. He's just brilliant. You know, all of his sermon, or all of his illustrations in the class were Civil War illustrations. I don't think I've done a Civil War illustration yet in this church. And, uh, but I would just love this guy, and I was glued to everything he was saying. And, you know, he lived a very fruitful life, and it was a very disciplined life. You know, he went to bed at 10 p.m. every night, and he woke up at 5.15 a.m. He had found that he needs exactly 7 hours and 15 minutes of sleep every night, his exact amount. And so that's what he does. Just like He's like a robot or something. You plug him in, you know, turn him on and off. And then he gets up, and he does push-ups and does a, you know, reads his Bible with his wife, and then he has all these goals and his his work week is very scheduled around accomplishing these goals. And, you know, I listened to this, and it was, this class was really helpful for me. There's a lot of things that I incorporated into my own life. And, of course, there are aspects of it that were discouraging to think, man, I don't know if I'm ever going to be, you know, quite that regimented. And uh, one of the things he loved to say is anything that he does, he's, you know, somewhere between 0 and 100% effective in accomplishing that thing. And I always think, well, I think I'm somewhere between 0, maybe 0 and 50%, you know, effective in doing these things that you're telling me to. But um, that's the thing is that when we're inspired by people who have orderly lives, that accomplish the goals that they want to accomplish in their lives, we find it both inspiring and discouraging at the same time. And, uh, you know, I, I imagine, you know, many of you are moms, you have young children, and life is chaos. And on the one hand, you say, you know, I would love someone to give me some practical tools about just how to order my home. How do I manage a home and chase these kids around and they're, you know, going crazy. And yet also, you just need encouragement that it's just hard. And if, you know, the house has got clothes everywhere, they're like, that's all right. And, you know, somehow I need both of these things. I both need some instruction on a structured, disciplined, you know, self-controlled life. And I also need encouragement. It's okay, man, this is hard. And so I think that's a big question for us as a church, as just in everything of our life, how do we be a church of grace? A church where we say, you come here and you know, you know, God does not love you based on your self-discipline and how regimented your life is. His love for you does not go up and down, but your love has been sealed by the blood of Christ. It's finished. The work is finished by Christ. And yet also be a church that recognizes that being a disciple of Jesus involves discipline. There's some rigor to being a disciple of Jesus. And so how do we be a church that does both of those things? Well, in order to understand a life of self-control this morning, we're going to answer three questions from this passage. And this is what they are. First of all, what is God's vision for our lives? You can't have a life structured 
towards a vision unless you first know what the vision is. What, where, where is God leading you? Where is God bringing you? What does God intend to do in your life? What are his purposes for you? You first have to answer that question. And then once you know what God's vision is, then we can say, how can we be intentional in our lives in pursuing the vision that God has for us? How can we be intentional? And then the third thing is, what means has God provided to give us that vision? There is a way that God has intended to give us the, the life he intends for us. And we have to give ourselves to those means. Okay, So these are the three things we're going to talk about this morning. So first, what is God's vision for our lives? Which is the question, how do you envision a good life? The good life. You know, just imagine that there was this God who was in control of everything and structured everything in your life so that it went perfectly according to plan. Okay, that's true. There is a God. That. But imagine, imagine there, there was a God that was doing that. What picture of a life would a perfectly orchestrated, everything goes right in your life, what would be the outcome? I think for many of us, the first thing that come to mind is, you know, something maybe about my career and my family and, you know, the things that I have in my life. There's a certain amount of comfort and, I, you know, I feel some purposefulness in my life. And uh, is that the vision that God has for our lives? Because your vision is what drives your ambition. It's what drives your time. Where are you going? And Paul has a vision for his life in mind in this passage. Notice what he says there in verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize, so that you may obtain it? Uh, every, uh, oh, sorry, run so that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable now, what Paul's doing in this passage is that in Corinth, every other year, there was something called the Isthmian Games, which is kind of like the Olympics, where, you know, uh, athletes would train all year to come to these games, and they'd have these races, and they'd have these competitions. And the perishable wreath that he's talking about, it was that the athletes would, if they won and got, you know, put up on the podium, they would get a crown made out of celery. And so, you know, all these, you know, Athletes are, have this dream in their mind of, I'm going to be on the podium of the celery crown, and it's going to really, I can't, you know, it's driving their life. And he's saying, listen, these athletes, they structure their whole lives and their ambition around this celery crown. And he's like, how much more should we structure our lives around the prize that God has for us? Now, there's a big question. What is that prize? What's the prize? Well, the word that's used there for prize is used, uh, Paul used it one other place in the New Testament. It's in Philippians chapter 3, where he similarly talks about pursuing uh, this, uh, pressing forward towards the prize, which is the upward call of God in Jesus. And if you know that passage, one of the things that Paul says in Philippians 3 is he does this whole description of all his kind of accolades as a religious leader. You know, he was zealous and he was a, he was a Pharisee. He was born in the tribe of Benjamin. He was very well respected. And he says, you know, all that is worth nothing to me. The thing that is precious to me is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. That is what's precious. That is the vision. That's the thing that's worth everything to me. That is what the prize is, is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And this is the vision of the good life that the Bible gives us. The Bible says that if everything went right in your life, perfectly according to plan, 
the end result would be that you would know the love of God for you in Jesus. And that would humble you and give you a tenderness so that you're actually able to love other people and serve other people. You're able to listen to other people. You're able to not be defensive when people are critical of you. Um, you're able to, when you're, you have a fractured relationship, you're able to enter into it and pursue reconciliation. This whole skill of love, if everything went right in your life, that's what the end result would be, was you would know God's love for you in Christ. You would love God and love others. That is what a good life is. And by, by the way, I want to clarify something. When I say the good life, I don't mean a moral life, you know, that you're a good person. You know, we say someone, that's not what I mean. By the good life, I mean a pleasurable life. I mean a happy life. There is no happier life than learning to be loved by God and then as a result learn to love him and love others. There isn't a happier life. There's nothing better that God can give you. That is the prize. And so if you want to have a life of self-control, the beginning is that picture, that vision has to be set before you. That prize, you have to understand that's where I'm going towards. That's the goal. That's what God's purposes are. That's what he wants to form in me is that. Which is, you know, a really interesting insight. That God has a prize set before us, a longing and a desire. Because I think for many of us, when we think about self-control... We think it means that repressing certain desires that are inside of us, you know, that we have a struggle with lust, and I need to control my lust, I need to push down the lust, and it's always kind of coming out when I don't want it to, and, you know, or, I, you know, I have this desires for alcohol or, you know, something else, some other sins that are, you know, destructive in my life, and I have these desires, I'm constantly trying to push them down. And what the Bible says is trying to just push down those desires simply won't work. What, you have, what has to happen in you is you have to have a new desire. He doesn't say get rid of the desires. He says replace the desire with a better one, with a new one, a deeper longing. And uh, another desire that is stronger than your sexually immoral desires. You need a better pleasure. And so, for example, if, if you read the book of um, Proverbs, the, the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs are basically this speech, these lectures, I guess, that a father is giving to his son. You know, the son's kind of coming into manhood. He's giving him all these warnings about this is how you live wisely in the world. And one of the main topics is about, you know, women and sexual relationships. And there's this, these two women that show up in Proverbs 9, the adulterous woman and lady wisdom. And it's a really interesting thing that the father says the way to resist the adulterous woman, you know, with her smooth words, the way to resist her is not to push down your desires and not have those desires. It's to desire lady wisdom instead. Have another desire. So Proverbs 7, 4, and 5 says, Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. It's a different kind of intimacy, an intimacy with God and with his wisdom, it is actually the thing is a new kind of pleasure that actually keeps us from the other pleasures. And so that's the first key to self-control is we have to have this vision of the kind of life God is forming in us. It is a kind of life where we are loved by God. We know how to be loved. We know how to trust in his, rest in his love. And as a result, we tend to be gentle and kind to other people. We have a cheerful spirit because we know God loves us. This is, this is something that God wants to give us. This is the prize that is out, is out in front. And so um, if that's the vision, though, we have to then order our lives 
in a way that reflects that that's the prize we're going towards, is a transformed character, becoming a new kind of person, Christ being formed of us. And so this leads to the second question. How can we be intentional in pursuing that vision? How can we be intentional in pursuing that vision? And so I think the beginning of that, to be, for you to be intentional about having a life of the transformation of your character that you'd learn to engage with other people and love them and to trust God and to pray to him and to talk to him, that transformation of your character, you have to first know that God intends to do that in your life. It's God's intention. He has this project, this plan with you, a purpose, it's a process that all the things that are happening in your life, he is structuring according to this plan. And so you first have to know, is well, if it's God's intention. And once you know that that's God's intention to transform me and to make me into that kind of person, then... It can become your intention. And let me just tell you, uh, let, let me say, if there are more important things in your life, what, if there's something that's more important than learning to be loved by God and therefore learning to love the people around you and to love God, if there's something more important in your life, I tell, I tell you this with gentleness, then you're lost. You know, if football is more important than love being formed in your heart, the only way to describe that is being lost, confused about what life is about. I'll tell you, I love football. I loved watching UW destroy Stanford on Friday. But if that is more important than knowing God's love in my life and having that impact how I interact with other people and interact with God's people, there's something wrong. And so there has to be an intentionality that says, this is the prize. This is the race that I'm running. This, I have to be intentional that I want nothing more than that to be formed in me. And I know for some of you, when you hear that, that may be discouraging to you because you say, you know what, I don't know how to be loved by God. I mean, I don't even know how to connect with God. I don't know how to feel like he loves me or even know that he's there. This is something that's totally foreign to me, and I don't know how to connect with other people. I don't know how to talk to other people. I don't know how to open my heart to people. I don't know how to listen to them and, and you know, uh, you know, both have an interaction of, of play and intimacy, and I, I just don't know how to do these things. And if that's true, then the beginning of this process is to simply say that. You think God doesn't know? <laughs> we don't know how to do that. He knows we don't know how to do that. And that's why he's put this process in place to form us. But it's not enough to say, I don't know how to do it. We have to also say, I believe that God wants to give me those things. God wants to make me that kind of person. And what that will do is it will bring an in intentionality into your life, and this is the way that Paul puts it in this passage, verse 25. He says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. And then in verse 26 he says, So I do not run aimlessly. I know where my life is aiming. I know what God's aim is. And what Paul says here is that when someone has an aim in their life, in many ways it becomes all-consuming. You know, so for example, you think of the intentionality if you're, if you're an athlete, an Olympic athlete, you know, and they have to exercise self-control. If you're a swimmer, I mean, you have to exercise self-control in the swimming pool and, you know, getting your mechanics right and stuff like that. But also, you have to exercise self-control in what you eat and your schedule and your sleep patterns. And, you know, it affects your whole life. If you have this aim, it actually impacts your whole life. And, you know, some of you coming to church, 
you, bet, you maybe have been surprised. You know, this church thing is in some ways all-consuming. You know, I'm here every week. I'm with people from church all the time. My relationships are in the church. And that's not because the church is trying to, you know, get control of your life. We don't want you to know your family or do the things you love. No, God wants you to be with your family and doing the things you love because that's where you're going to be loving people and showing people the love of Christ. But it's one of the things that we realize that this whole process, God is remaking me. And if he is remaking me, this is going to be an all-consuming process. And it's to transform who I am and how I relate to him and to people. And um, so we should not be surprised. We should expect that. Now, I read a a book a couple years ago by a guy named Dallas Willard, which is about this whole process of the transformation of our character in Christ, putting on the character of Christ. It's called The Renovation of the Heart is the name of the book. And one of the things that Willard says is that for many Christians, their understanding of what it means to be a Christian, you know, when God saved me from my sin, what, how they understand what that means is, you know, I believed in Jesus, and so now I know that I'm going to go to heaven when I die. And so I'm just trying to keep myself clean enough, you know, not get in too much trouble before I die, so that when I die, I know get, get to go be with Jesus. And he says that as a result, people could be in church, they can be engaged in the Christian life for decades, uh, years and years of their life, and there's really no transformation in their character. They're just as angry as they ever were. You know, many Christians, every fractured relationship, they never experience reconciliation in those relationships experiencing healing. That never happens. Or, um, uh, you know, there's a coldness that they don't know how to relate to other people and engage with other people. And they go on decades and decades years and years, and nothing is changing, and nothing is transforming. And what Willard says is that because many people expect that that transformation will just happen through by accident. You know, I'm just drifting along. God's going to do what he wants. But the transformation that God does in our life involves an intentionality. And I, I put a quote for you in your bulletin. You might want to turn there. This, it might be easier to read than to listen to. On page three of your bulletin, from Willard, And this is what he says. Still, more than vision is required, and especially there is required an intention. Projects of personal transformation rarely, if ever, succeed by accident, drift, or imposition. So you're not, you know, if you're drifting along in your life, your life will not change. But also, if someone tries to impose on you, you need to be different, you're not going to change that way either. Okay? So indeed, where accident, drift, and imposition dominate, as they usually do, quite frankly, in the lives of professing Christians, very little of any human value transpires. Effective action has to involve order, subordination, and progression, developing from inside of the personality. So what he says is your character is not transformed by accident uh, if you just wait long enough. Willard says it happens through order, subordination, and progression. I think that sounds like what Paul is saying in this passage. Look at verse 26. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Actually, what it, that literally says is that I pummel my body and I make it my slave. 
And he's like, wow. You know, he's like a boxer. He's like, I don't just box the air. But he's beating himself, you know. With, you know, he's trying to get his body to do what he wants. And so, you know, this brings us back to that original question. You know, when we come to church, we're like, you know, it's God who saves us. It's God who transforms our lives. And, you know, by his grace, and then here's Paul talking about beating his body into submission and making his slave. These sound like different things. How do these things go together? Well, um, the Westminster... Shorter catechism. Westminster uh, standards are our doctrinal standard as a church. It's the theology that we uh, believe in as a church. It was written in the 1640s. It has this catechism where there's these questions and answers, and I want to read one of them to you. This is what it says. Question 153, Westminster Shorter Catechism. What does God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us by reason of the transgression of the law. So this is a question. Paul, it's saying, what do you need to do to be saved from God's wrath? And the answer is a little bit surprising to me. It might be surprising to you. This is what it says. That we may escape the wrath and curse of God due to us by reason of the transgression of the law. He requires of us repentance towards God. So we have to repent of our sins and turn towards God. And faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's how I would answer it. You know, what do you got to do to be saved? You repent of your sins and you believe in Jesus. But it adds one more thing. And the diligent use of the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of his mediation. There's a lot of big words in there, but I'll tell you what it means. Is it says that God has appointed certain means by which to give us his grace. And we have to order and structure our lives to receive his grace through those means. So this leads to the third question. So the first question is we have to have a vision that God intends to transform us, form Christ in us, radically transform us. And then we have to have an intentionality that this is the most important thing in my life. It's going to be an all-consuming process where God is going to transform me. But what are the means that God has appointed to give me his grace? And uh, Westminster names three means that God has given us, by which he changes who we are. The word, the sacraments, and prayer. Three, uh, three things. And these, if you want to know that God is working in your life, this is where his Holy Spirit tends to work, is through these three things. Now, of course, God works in many ways to give us grace beyond these three, but these are the three primary ways. And so I want to talk about each of them briefly. Okay? So the first is this, the word. The word is God's first means of grace, and you can see that in this passage in verse 27. Look at what verse 27 says. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And what Paul says is that the life-changing message of the gospel is not something that he just has to give to other people. It's something that he needs to hear in his own life. Even though he's, he's you know, the apostle, he himself needs to hear the gospel. And so this is, this is a question for us. How is your life structured to receive God's grace through the word? Well, I mean, the good news is you're sitting here right now and God's grace is being given to you through his word. The fact that you're sitting here means you've structured your life in some way to receive God's grace to you. And uh, the Lord, and I'll just tell you, you come to a worship service once a week on Sundays, and you make that a, a regular part of your life where you come here with an open heart and give your mind and heart to the Word of God, 
you will transform. You will be a different person. We have many people who come into our church and, and they've never regularly been in church. And they came and they were regularly brought in church. It totally transforms their life. The word of God does that. It, it changes us. But there are other places to structure your life so that you're receiving God's word. You know, we have this workshop class. It's a place where you say, there's a structured time in my life where I need God's word. And, uh, you know, if you're involved in a home group, if you go to the women's Bible study, these are structured places where I know that this is where, this is how God gives me his grace and transforms me, so I'm going to give myself to that. Or um, also, in your personal life, having a regular time of reading the scriptures. I'll tell you, the people who are most profoundly changed by the Word of God are people who have it, the Word of God as a regular part of their schedule of their life. That I pick up the Word and I meditate on it, and I, and, uh, I read the Scriptures and I meditate on it. And so the first means of grace, how does God give you His grace? It's through the Word. Second means of grace is through the sacraments, which this is it's probably strange for some of you. But uh, even though this passage doesn't talk about the sacraments, the very next verse in chapter 10, Paul starts talking about baptism. And then actually the next three, uh, the next three chapters of 1 Corinthians are the most extensive teaching in the New Testament on the Lord's Supper and the significance of the Lord's Supper and what it does. So Paul is, has his whole imagination. How is this church going to learn to love one another? It's through understanding baptism and the Lord's Supper, which I, you know, I think this is so amazing. That, you know, Paul's talking about beating himself, you know, and he's like, <laughs> I need to order my life and I need to be self-controlled. And what kind of thing do you need to structure your life around is to make sure that you come to this table and receive Christ's life into you. <laughs> you know, does this feel like work to come to the table and have Christ feed you? It's this experience of grace. And many of you know this. You know, maybe you were at a church where you didn't take communion very regularly. And now that you have it as a weekly part of your life to come to God's table... The Holy Spirit is present in this meal, and God transforms you when you come and you eat with Jesus. You will not leave unchanged. And of course, both hearing the word and coming to the sacrament, we have to come with an open heart. We have to come with faith, believing that God has something. He's going to give us his grace. He wants to give us grace. But these are the means that God has given us, and so we structure our lives around these means. And then, of course, the third one is, I'm not going to say much about this, but it's prayer. I'll tell you, you want to learn that God loves you, that you are God's child. He's not ashamed of you. He does not hold your sins over your head. The best way to learn that is by praying and finding that God actually listens to you. He there's all these billions of people in the world and he listens to your little prayers about your little problems and he actually cares and he'll bring people in to support you and he'll answer those prayers and you're going to be amazed and say, I think I might actually be a child of God. You will find that out through praying. And so all these three things, you know, we, answer, we ask this question of like, okay, how, how do we, you know, have square having a disciplined life with having a life of grace. And it turns out the Bible says the thing you need to be disciplined about is receiving God's grace. The thing that you need to structure in your life is the places where God's giving his grace and the word and the sacraments of prayer. And those are the things that need structure. And it turns out, where do all of these things point us? Where does the word point us? To Jesus. Where does the sacrament, you know, my body broken for you, you know, blood shed for you, where does it point us? It points us to Jesus. Where does prayer point you? 
You start praying, immediately you're going to say, okay, I hope my sins are forgiven in Jesus. Your prayer is going to point you to Jesus. And all of these things are structured simply to fix our eyes on him. And there's a great uh, passage, and I, I just want to end with this. You know, this language of a race. Paul's talking about, you know, we should run this, this race, and we're competing in a race for the prize. And there's another place in the New Testament that talks about a race. It's in Hebrews 12. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so as we run this race, we have this vision, this intentionality. It's a race that Jesus has already won. He's already completed. He's already done it for us. And as we fix our eyes on him, he will see us to the end. Let's pray together. Mighty God in heaven, we thank you for these challenging words. Lord, we long to experience your grace in our lives. We long to know your love for us deeply and to trust and rest in it. We also long to learn to love others. Would you, by your Spirit, help us to diligently give ourselves to these means of grace that you have appointed for us, that in them we would learn to love like Christ, who has first loved us. It's in his mighty name we pray. Amen.